I'd like you to take your Bibles and turn to the book of Luke, chapter 19. We're going to be looking at the opening 10 verses of that chapter. And uh, a very familiar story as you're going to see, but I think you'll probably hear it perhaps a little differently than you've heard it in the past. Not radically differently, by the way. <laughs> Charles Spurgeon, the famed Victorian preacher who preached to a standing room only congregation of 5,000 morning and evening without a microphone, uh, established a pastor's college which exists to this day. And a famous feature of the college in his day, that experience, was what was called the Question Oak, which was a large oak on Spurgeon's estate, his, uh, his home, where on Fridays, if the weather was uh, nice, they would gather together in what was ca called the Question Oak. And there Spurgeon would sit with his student body, his small student body, and uh, he would ask them to get up and give an extemporaneous sermon in front of him. In other words, he'd announce the text and they were on. You can imagine such a, uh, doing this in front of Spurgeon, in front of the students, and, and you've just been told what the text is. Well, on one memorable occasion, Spurgeon called on a student to give a message on Zacchaeus. The student rose and said, Zacchaeus was of little stature, and so am I. Zacchaeus was up a tree, and so am I. Zacchaeus came down, and so will I, and he went and sat down. And uh, Spurgeon led the applause. It was a fun time under the question oak. And Zacchaeus' escapade makes uh, a fun story. The idea of a wee little man perched up in a tree is, is uh, the stuff of children's stories, right? Zacchaeus was a wee little man. A wee little man was he. He climbed up in a sycamore tree for the Lord he wanted to see. And there is humor there. But I want to say that the story occupies a very serious place in Luke's account of Jesus' life because, and you want to note this, this is Jesus' last personal encounter before his arrival in Jerusalem and the events that lead to his death. His last personal encounter. And if you read the book of Luke, all that remains is the parable of the ten minas, and then you have the triumphal entry into Jerusalem. So this is the last personal encounter. And significantly, the final line of the Zacchaeus story gives us the summary line of the purpose of Jesus' ministry at the end of the road. And if you look down at verse 10, it says, For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save the lost. So he summarizes it in the last encounter before he goes into Jerusalem. And in this respect, the salvation of Zacchaeus has telling spiritual connections to the two events that precede it. 
Its connection, this is in chapter 18, to the healing of the blind beggar is obvious because the deliverance there of a man hopelessly lost in blindness and poverty now corresponds to the deliverance of this little man hopelessly lost in wealth and corruption. And its connection to the story before that of the rich young ruler is very clear because it stated there what is humanly impossible, namely the salvation of a rich man. Where Jesus says in 1825, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person, a rich man, to enter the kingdom of God. So what happens in the story of Zacchaeus as the impossible takes place? The salvation of an impossibly lost, rich little man. That is the great theme. Now, from a tax-collecting point of view, Zacchaeus has it made. He was a tax collector. Taxes were collected in three places in that area of the Holy Land in those days. In Capernaum, up at the top of the Sea of Galilee. In Jericho, at the ford of the Jordan River, and in Jerusalem. Those are the big three tax-gathering franchises, and he had the Jericho franchise. And it was beautiful, a place in great palm forest and rich balsam groves, a wealthy place at the ford of the river. And as chief tax collector, he was head of a tax-gathering franchise where the collectors would extort the people and then pay the remaining to the Romans. I mean, what a deal. Squeeze as much as you could squeeze out of them, pay the Romans, and then you get all the rest. So, this little man was the kingpin of the Jericho tax cartel, so to speak. I mean, if you were thinking of him in today's terms, he would have the scruples of a, uh, of a um, you know, a drug kingpin, you know, a Don Escobar of the cartel. Bottom line, he was a filthy, rich little man in the fullest sense of the word, a filthy, rich little man, and not a likely candidate for the kingdom. And of course, he's hated. I mean, oh, is he hated. In the eyes of the countrymen, his littleness was more than physical. He was a zero. He was a non-person. His pathetic lowliness. They hated this man. I think some of the locals would like to see if they could see him put through the eye of a needle, literally. Squeezed out, as C.S. Lewis put it, in one long bloody thread from tail to snout. No one would have ever guessed on that day, on that spring day, that Zacchaeus would have wanted to see Jesus. But he did. Beginning to verse 3, as Luke says, he was seeking to see who Jesus was. Well, you have to wonder why would he want to see Jesus? 
I think if you, if you think of the context of the Gospels, perhaps you'd heard of the conversion of Levi the tax collector, who was now a follower of Jesus, St. Matthew we call him, Matthew 5, 27 to 31. Perhaps he'd even known Levi or Matthew. I mean, the, 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 the Holy Land is a small place, and tax collectors would have naturally known each other and gotten together, sort of a fellowship of the scum. They hung together. They talked about their business. And because Jesus had ministered to Matthew, Levi, and others of his crowd, he had, Jesus had irked the religious establishment and was known by the religious establishment as a friend, they spit it out, a friend of tax collectors and sinners, they said. So evidently, Jesus had a soft spot for people like Zacchaeus in his profession. I think that's one of the reasons possibly, very likely reason. I think the other reason surely is that he found his wealth and lifestyle unsatisfying. A sense of dis-ease invaded his pleasures. No pleasure lasted. Nothing was totally fulfilling regardless of all the wealth and all the pleasures that he had, wasn't satisfied. I mean, that's, that's the way it has been with so many people. It was a lack of, it was a dissatisfaction, a, a lack of satisfaction that drew St. Augustine, for example, to Christ. As Augustine wrote in retrospect, speaking to God, you were always present, angry and merciful at once, strewing the pangs of bitterness over my lawless pleasures to lead me to look on for others unmixed with pain. And again, Augustine said to God, your goad, like a stick, was thrusting at my heart, giving me no peace until the eye of my soul could discern you without mistake. And so I think that that this is the way people are drawn to Christ, by a severe mercy of dissatisfaction. Nothing satisfies. I think also it's very probable that Zacchaeus just got tired of being hated. I mean, that's kind of a withering thing to be hated wherever you go. You know, you're wealthy, you can get what you want, but people don't like you. They let you know by their looks. They let you know by how they ignore you. I think he was a man who gave as good as he got, this little guy, but it was wearying, and he was desolate and alone. And thus, for these reasons, Jesus had ministered to people like him, his, his severe mercy of dissatisfaction. He was determined to see Jesus. But alas... Looking at the text again in verse 3, on account of the crowd, he couldn't because he was of small stature. He was a little man. I don't know how small he was, but he must have been a little guy. Uh, I mean, what pleasure, I think, if I didn't like him, of being in the front row and kind of boxing him out, you know, stepping back on his foot maybe and say, oh, well... Little people are hard to see. Short people have no reason. No, I wouldn't say that. 
But short or not, Zacchaeus had legs and he used them. Verse 4, so he ran on ahead and climbed up in the sycamore tree to see him for he, that is Jesus, was about to pass by. And uh, to be specific, it's very fascinating. According to my Bible dictionary, the sycamore tree is a ficus sycamorus, a sturdy tree about 40 feet high with this, a short trunk. I mean, that's his kind of tree. All the, the, the uh, comics and, and humor that's naturally here aside, as we've seen, this tiny rejected man sitting alone, hidden up among the leaves where he can't be seen to get a glimpse of Jesus, that is a very touching thing. He certainly didn't want the crowd to know he was there. He wanted to see Jesus, but from his perspective, seeing Jesus, hearing some of his words uh, wouldn't change his situation. He'd get a private view down through the leaves. The crowd would pass. And from his point of view, at least, and from the story's point of view, he'd remain unseen like an orphan peering into a lighted window on a dark night. He wasn't going to have contact with Jesus. He just wanted to see him. Because you see that there was a geographical shift taking place in his soul. There was this interior initiative. But that interior-driven initiative of Zacchaeus is matched by the exterior initiative of Christ. And so in, in, in verse 6, uh, we read, So when Jesus came to the place, he looked up, and he said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down. I must stay at your house today. So, he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. And we know how, as the children's song goes, and as the Savior passed his way, he looked up in a tree and he said, Zacchaeus, you come down, for I'm going to your house today. For I'm going to your house today. Now, step back and think about this. He's up in the tree. When Jesus stopped under that sycamore tree, hidden Zacchaeus would have naturally tensed. Oh, he stopped. Maybe even had a quick sweat. And then sheer terror gripped his soul as Jesus raised his eyes and locked his eyes with Zacchaeus through the leaves. I think probably Zacchaeus braced for further ridicule, especially when Jesus said his name. Oh, my. He knew his name. Well, in Jesus' use of Zacchaeus' personal name, there is a hint of grace because the same all-knowing eyes go back to the opening chapters of John that had seen Nathaniel under a fig tree and discerned what? His guileless character under the fig tree looks up and sees guilty Zacchaeus. It was supernatural knowledge. And then, 
as Jesus invited himself to Zacchaeus' home, he didn't say, Zacchaeus, I'd like to stay at your home today. He said, Zacchaeus, I must stay. The divine initiative. Jesus Christ regarded his encounter with Zacchaeus as his divine mission. His seeking Zacchaeus, brothers and sisters, was a work of sovereign grace. Well, what we begin to see at this point in the story is the Zacchaeus seeking of Jesus and Jesus seeking of Zacchaeus was both a sovereign work of God. The interior initiative, the exterior initiative was all of God. And the crossing of their lives under that sycamore tree was a work of divine providence. And theologically, According to Ephesians, the first chapter, it was a meeting set before the foundation of the world. And the camel was about to go through the eye of a needle. Luke says, so he came down at once and welcomed him gladly. That glad leap which Zacchaeus dismounted the the tree, you know, a few twigs coming down, leaves floating down, may have revealed to Zacchaeus himself and no doubt to the bystanders what he had been dimly wishing for, which was to meet Jesus. And then from here on in the story, apart from the crowd's muttering, the, the muttering in disgust, he's gone in to be a guest of a sinner There's only joy, Zacchaeus' joy and Jesus' joy. And so to the crowd's amazement, off strode the the half-pint kingpin of the Jericho tax cartel, hurrying along on his busy little legs next to Jesus toward his home. And Jesus and his disciples would spend the night in Zacchaeus' home according to hospitality and Hebrew uh, custom. And sometime during that stay in those hours, probably after much discussion and prayer, a little big man would emerge and formally stand and declare before all of Jericho, verse 8, Behold, Lord, The half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I've defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. Now, think of this. For starters, he gave away 50% of everything he had. This filthy, rich little man gave away half of his fortune when he stood before the people. And then, from the remaining 50%, he pledged to make restitution four times to anyone if he cheated anyone. Well, the if, believe me, he had. So, he basically put his whole fortune out there to the people. I think they took him up on it. Well... Uh, In effect, 
Now, here's the point. He lived out the command that it earlier caused the rich ruler so much grief. If you look at chapter 18, verse 22, Jesus said to the rich ruler, come to him, sell all you have and distribute to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. You see it? So, what is happening is Zacchaeus is walking through the eye of a needle, and he's living to tell it. And the little man had become huge. His impulsive drive to make money was gone, to keep it. He no longer needed his wealth. He went into that house with Jesus, mastered by the passion to get, and he exited the house, mastered by the passion to give. He went into the house, the smallest man in Jericho, and emerged from the house as the biggest man in town. Something inside that house had happened to him. Well, you don't have to guess what it is because the text is absolutely clear in verse 9. Jesus said to him, today, he said it to Zacchaeus, today salvation has come to this house because he also, Zacchaeus, is a son of Abraham. He's speaking of being a spiritual son of Abraham, not just a physical son of Abraham. And the answer is Zacchaeus had been born again. He'd been regenerated, and the liberating joy of salvation was coursing through his little soul. By faith, he'd become a true son of Abraham. He shared the faith of Abraham, rooted in Abraham. Abraham believed God. It was accounted to him for righteousness. He believed in Christ's word, and it's accounted to him for righteousness. And he did then the works like the works of his father Abraham. He'd met the horn of salvation, Jesus himself, the mighty horn of salvation, who would give his people knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins. He was a new man. That's the answer. Salvation had come to his house. That is why he gave away his fortune. Now, I'm going to take a little time right here to uh, talk about some things before we go on with the story. Non-believers are quick to criticize the gospel as sentimental and unpractical. If you watch the late-night talk show hosts, if, you watch, if you've seen Jon Stewart and some of the others, oh, man, Oh, man, what they have to say. A lot of ugly adjectives about the gospel, its lack of practicality, its sentimentality, and so on. But I want to say that if it is impractical, if it doesn't apply, if it doesn't apply to the world, it's our fault. It is not the gospel's fault because the demands of the gospel are intensely practical, and they include, brothers and sisters, a reorientation to our material possessions. Because your grip on things is loosened. If you're a Christian, your grip on the things of this world is loosened. Now, this was an intensely uh, important thing in the gospel of Luke, and I'd like you to just, 
If, you need to jot these things down. But in Luke 6.24, this is where we're at in the Gospel of Luke, Jesus says, but woe to you who are rich, for you have already received your consolation. Now, what he did is he pronounced a woe upon the rich because in their self-sufficiency and their independence, they're opposite of those to whom he came to preach the gospel and would receive it. So, he says, woe to them. This is Jesus speaking. And then if you go back to the fourth chapter, verse 18, Luke 4, 18, where he quotes Isaiah 61, 1, he says, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to proclaim the good news to the poor. Who will hear it? Not like that rich man who went away sorrowing, but people who would hear it. And then in Luke, the 12th chapter, Verses 20 and 21, you have these solemn words to everyone who trusts in riches. This is Luke 20, 12, verses 20 and 21, Jesus speaking in the story. Fool, this night your soul is required of you, and then the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. I was with your pastor yesterday, and I found a, there's, a, there's a type of poetry called a haiku. It's just a line. And I ran across this. It just says it for this. My barn burned down last night. Now I can see the moon. Isn't that beautiful? And then... In Luke 16, verse 13, Jesus gives us this spiritual axiom. These are all dominical. They're all from the lips of Jesus. No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. So, I mean, this is, this is Luke's theology that we're building right up to with the story of Zacchaeus. And then, just before Zacchaeus, chapter 18, verses 24 and 25, Jesus responds to the rich ruler who went away sorrowing, verses 24 and 25, how difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Wow. So, what's going on here? Well, what Jesus is doing is saying over and over that it's useless to talk about loving Him and trusting Him and having the sweet hope of assurance of forgiveness and the glorious hope of heaven unless it makes a difference in our attachment to the things of this world. I said at one time to my congregation years ago in a different context, so I was preaching on 2 Corinthians 8, I said, there is no such thing as a Christian Scrooge. And if you are a Scrooge, you better take a good look at your soul and find out whether you really are a believer. Because the gospel makes us generous people. I'm not talking about legalism. I'm just saying it makes, it opens your hands. 
and your attachment to the things of this world. And so Jesus' repeated emphasis is, is that the generosity is not a means of redemption. You don't get saved through giving. You don't get saved through being generous. You don't get sa- saved by doing that. It is an evidence of redemption. And in fact, Luke and therefore the Holy Spirit presents generosity and giving as a pillar of discipleship. And I want to say that no one has been truly discipled unless they have learned to give. And you may have reached a sticking point in your life, and it's never occurred to you. And I'm, I'm speaking to students here, you know. You need to be generous. When I say generous, it can be money, but it can be generous with your possessions, generous with your time. But you need to be a generous soul. Does that make sense? And, and a faithful church, a faithful pulpit will proclaim this. Not to serve the church, but to serve Christ and to serve the people. So Zacchaeus was ready because he was saved. He was a big man. The gospel makes little people big. Well, kind of back to the story. As we mentioned, the account ends with a great summary of Christ's mission. You see it in verse 10. That's the, that's the tale of that text. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. And here's what I want to say. Zacchaeus was beyond salvation. And you'd have felt that way if you lived in Jericho... If I, if I was there, I'd have probably written him off, impossibly lost, impossibly lost. And, and you have to think about it. He had turned his back on God's Word, his covenant people. The Hebrews, the Jews, he turned his back on them. And he had become a perpetrator of Roman oppression, And he made his money off the backs of his own people like a pimp. He loved money more than anything. His cartel was the cause of so much injustice. He was the baddest, meanest, smallest man in town. Impossibly lost, except for one thing. He was sought out, and notice in verse 10, that final verse, Who's he sought out by? The Son of Man. Do you see that's capitalized? The capital S-O-N and the capital man. You know what that is? That is a term that Jesus took and applied to himself from Daniel 7, 13, and 14, where you read about where the Son of Man, that title is the name of the majestic sovereign being of Daniel's vision to whom the Ancient of Days has given all dominion and all authority because he is that Son of Man. He can do anything, all power and all dominion. The Son of Man has come to seek and to save the lost. He is awesome God. Because Jesus is the transcendent God-man, co-eternal with the Ancient of Days. Thus, the transcendent God-man, the Son of Man, sought Zacchaeus and did the impossible. And here it is about Zacchaeus, camel-brained Zacchaeus, 
donkey sold Zacchaeus, passed through the eye of a needle, not in a long bloody thread from tail to snout, but whole because of the blood of Jesus, the door. The impossible happened. You see, salvation came to Zacchaeus because he was sought out. It was God who prompted that interior seeking. As Augustine said of God in another place, you follow close behind the fugitive and you call us to yourself in ways we cannot understand. He makes us hungry. He causes us to search. He compels us to come. So that interior seeking, but, but then God also arranged the exterior seeking when they crossed under the fig tree. And here it is. Zacchaeus was caught because in his seeking... He was sovereignly sought. You hear that? I sought the Lord, and afterward I knew. He moved my heart to seek Him, seeking me. It was not I that found, O oh, Savior true. No, I was found of you. It was God who effected his salvation. And I just want to say, is God seeking you? Because if he is seeking you, you're going to know an interior dis-ease. You're not going to find life satisfying. In fact, nothing will really satisfy if he's seeking you, you'll never be really comfortable anymore even though you're lying in a down sofa because you lack wholeness, because you lack a clear conscience, because you have no peace. But understand this, and it's to quoting Lewis, the hardness of God is kinder than the softness of man, and his compulsion is our liberation. This is Christ seeking you. And if that is so, then this morning, by virtue of your sitting under his word, you are under the sycamore tree. And he's looking up and saying to you, you're up in the sycamore tree. Come down. I want to dine with you. I want your soul. I've caused you to desire me. I sought you. I'm seeking you. And I am the Son of Man, the awesome God, the Ancient of Days who can do it. I am sovereign God, and more, I died for you, and I am resurrected for you. Come down. You may say, if you knew my heart, you wouldn't say that. And he said, 
I know your heart. You say, I'm too small. And he would say, yes, you are. Yes, you are too small. But I died for you. I will give you a new heart, a big heart, come down. Now, I don't know whether you've heard the gospel like that before. I'm talking to people who maybe are observing. But you just heard the gospel. If you come down, so to speak, and look up to Jesus on the cross, guess what? You become a new person right now. May God uh, use these words to bring grace to his people. Don't you love to hear the gospel? Even as a believer, to hear it again and again. And one of the things I love about having the four gospels is you have so many views of the wondrous work of Christ. I love this thought that back in 827, um, Dr. Hughes said, makes the point that Jesus says it's impossible to go through an eye of a needle. It's impossible for a rich man to be saved. And then just a few verses later shows it is possible with God with the saving of Zacchaeus. Thank you so much, Dr. Hughes. If you have questions about anything that's been said, if there's a burden on your heart, if there's any spiritual uh, realities that you don't understand, our prayer room is going to be open in a few minutes uh, to my right. Uh, Luke and Bethany will be over there. We would love to serve you, talk to you, pray with you. If there's anything we can do, we are here for you. Let's stand together and I will dismiss us and then we'll come back in just about 15 minutes. Hear Dr. Hughes again in our combined Sunday school hour. Father, how our hearts warm when we hear of the Savior's heart. We are all Zacchaeus. We are all sinners who are beyond the possibility of saving from our own prerogatives. And yet you, in grace, look and bid us to come to you. Lord, I pray that you would move on troubled hearts, move on hearts that are unsure of their salvation that no one would leave today without the security of knowing that Christ has secured a righteous standing before you and provided the remission and the forgiveness of all sin. Thank you for your word. And I pray that the rest of our day includes fresh thinking and reflections on your wonder. Pray this because of Christ. Amen. Amen.